0: Gateway family, it is good to be with you this morning once again. And for some of you know we are in a new location as far as our uh, broadcast station is concerned. We have been since February broadcasting from our home, and uh, we've enjoyed that. But uh, God has provided a place for us that's much larger where we can set things up and have a band here. So we hope, we pray that this is going to be a helpful tool as we continue on to serve the Lord together and bring um, this live stream to you. Uh, We want to welcome all of you that are here and with us today, and I want you to note that at the end of our time this morning, we are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And uh, some have asked the question, should we be doing that? We're not necessarily physically gathered together as the body of Christ. And uh, I want to get just a brief response to that. Response number one is this, we're we're commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, It is something that is part of the life and, and the heart of what it means to be the Church of Jesus Christ. And... Um, not only that, if we, we don't have it, we, we, we suffer because it's something that God has put into the DNA of the church to say that we need it. And although we're not physically present together, Scripture in those passages about the Lord's Supper talks about the church coming together, but uh, they never would necessarily have envisioned where we are today and the circumstances that we are in, and as we come, we come together via live stream, and we want to do the best that we can with that. And certainly, it's not perfect. Uh, there's some, some issues that we want to be mindful of. And the, the first issue, of course, is making sure that we are coming respectfully, giving the right kind of attention, and not just being flippant. And so, I would encourage you uh, to be preparing yourself rightly, um, and that we would uh, certainly serve the Lord. In having that ordinance together for His glory in such a way that would reflect the tone and the purpose of uh, God's instructions in His Word. Well, uh, as you know, we're going through the book of Exodus, and we find ourselves in chapter 17 again this morning. And for those that may be visiting with us this morning, that's our practice is to work our way through a book of the Bible. And uh, Exodus has been the place that God has allowed us to uh, be fed and strengthened from. And uh, we are going to be in Exodus chapter 17. And I'm going to read this morning verses 8 through 16, after which I'll pray and we'll get into the sermon this morning. So I would invite you to get your Bibles, to stand where you are, and uh, we will read this passage of Scripture together. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Write this as a memorial in in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Lord, we realize that the stories that we find in the Old Testament are not simply stories of legend and fable. Lord, they are actual events that happened with your people under your guidance and care. And you have preserved these stories for our benefit. And so, Lord, this morning, as we gather around your word, Lord, may may we receive it truly as that, as it is your very word. And Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? And allow me as your messenger, as your uh, as your shepherd this morning, proclaiming your truth. Uh, Lord, allow me to simply reflect uh, your text in such a way to communicate what you desire for your people, that we as your people could be strengthened and encouraged to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. and as a result of that, live our lives for your glory in, in the place that you've uh, positioned us. Lord, we ask for your help, and we, Lord, seek the strength that you provide. In your precious name, amen. Now, during the Hundred Years' War, which, of course, was a battle that took place between France and England, uh, there was something called the aura Flame. It was the banner that the French would bring out when it came time to go into battle with England. They didn't bring out all the time because much of the time when armies like that would go into battle, part of the goal was to capture a knight or someone who had money, who had some standing, and they would want to capture them so they could ransom them and they could make money. So part of the, the purpose and the goal of the battles was actually to make money for those armies. But when the flame came out, It was a very, very large orange banner. It communicated something to the enemies of France. It communicated that there would be no quarter, which meant that there would be no prisoners taken. Anyone captured would be slaughtered. So there'd be no opportunity for chivalry, no opportunity for ransom. It was a symbol of cruelty and ferocity in battle. And such flags or banners have been around throughout history and typically identified kings, um, lords, knights, maybe a country or a region of a country, or certain sides of, uh, uh, of battles, maybe even in a civil war. And to be a standard bearer or a banner holder was considered to be an honorable Role because that standard needed to be held high. And to protect the colors, the banner was the duty of the military force. In fact, if the colors fell, it meant that the enemy would soon be victorious. And so if you were a soldier and you saw the colors fall, if you saw the banner go down, you wanted to go and you wanted to raise it to encourage your fellow army to continue in the battle and to fight on. And of course, capturing the enemy's standard or banner was considered a prize, an evidence of victory in battle. Now, friends, in a similar way, the world is full of countries whose flags typically communicate something about who they are and what they value. I draw your attention to the flag of the United Kingdom, the Union Jack. Even in the name, you understand that there's a purpose there. It was drawing together the nations of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland into this one flag. And of course, our own American flag, the Stars and Stripes, has a representation. 50 states, 13 colonies, and it's a symbol of freedom. It's a symbol uh, of of fighting for freedom against tyranny. These banners, these flags... Communicate countries and ideas, ways of thinking, loyalty, and sometimes culture. They're rallying points for people to gather around. Sometimes these banners reflect not just countries, but ideologies. We see that in the history of the world, but even today. There's the Nazi flag. There's the LGBTQ flag. There's the Christian flag. There's the Antifa flag. And then, in a much less significant way, we see this when it comes to the world of sports, don't we? People have flags on their cars when the Warriors in the playoffs. That's been a few years now. The 49ers or the Raiders or whatever it might be. It's a way for people to identify with what they love and what they are loyal to. So they communicate an affinity and a loyalty all under a rallying point. This is what these flags, these banners, these standards, or even it's translated a signal in scriptural, all represent, all are there to do. Yet, friends, there is another banner that transcends all of these banners put together. And it's found in our text. It is the banner that is called Yahweh Nisi, or the Lord is my Banner. You may have caught that as we read through this passage. And so this morning, I would like for us to consider this, that this passage is a call for us to look to Christ as our banner while living out the Christian life. A call to look to Christ as our banner while living out the Christian life. It is a call for us in the midst of our trials and struggles and burdens to rally together around Christ and the cross to look to him for our help and for our hope. This flag, this banner, this signal, this standard is to be our reference point throughout all of our lives in both the good times as well as the bad times. Now, some of you know that I live in the hills of Hayward up by Cal State East Bay. And some of you may know that uh, Cal State wasn't always Cal State East Bay. It used to be Cal State Hayward. And one of the things that Cal State Hayward was known for was its building. In fact, I remember when I would go out of town, maybe I would go on a missions trip, and I'm flying back and get to the airport, and I'm driving across the bridge. I'm looking for that building. It was a reference point to my home. Wherever I might be, I would see that building and say, it's, it's not far. I'm almost home. And for me, it was a reference point of comfort and joy because I knew where I was going to be in just a few minutes. Now, unfortunately, that building's gone, and that reference point is gone, but it was for many years a reference point as to where I live. When people would say, hey, where do you live? i say, well, I live up by Cal State Hayward. And they'd say, oh, okay, I know that because I've seen the building up there, right? It's a reference point. Now, friends, this banner of the Lord is a reference point for us. It's something that we are always to be keeping our eyes on. We're living our lives in light of this banner of the Lord. And so in our text, Moses wants us to see that the Lord is our banner. He wants to draw our attention to that banner as the reference point for our struggles. And he wants us to face those struggles in light of that banner. And so our text is divided into three sections. A call to fight, a call for us to help, and a call for us to remember. And let's consider now this call to fight. Verse 8, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now friends, this is a reality that we must embrace. I want you to notice in the text that Israel did not go out looking for a fight. The fight came to them. Amalek came and fought with Israel. Now, there's there's a move that's been taking place. There's a development that's going on here in God's sovereign testing of his children. It unfolds ultimately in two ways. First of all, it's, it's internal. And it moves from internal to external. The internal threats, we find, have already taken place. For example, they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're struggling there in the wilderness. What is God going to do? And of course, they ultimately have been guilty of grumbling and quarreling and testing God. These are all threats from within, and this is what happens to a community of believers. There can be threats from within that result in the people grumbling and even quarreling. But there are also external threats, and that's what we find now. Israel must face this new test. And this external test is a tribe of people who are opposed to them and who do not fear God, is what we're told. So there's this new arena, this new area in the wilderness where God is testing his people Israel. Not only is there an internal-external issue, but there's also a passive and active issue. In other words, there's passive obedience or a passive um, participation that Israel has been experiencing, and there's an active responsibility that they're now being called to. Let's just think through this. This passive participation has taken place because God has has been the one who's been doing all the work. right? Think back about the plagues. What does God say to Israel? He just says, this is what I'm going to do, and you stand back. In fact, I'm going to make a distinction between you and Egypt, And you're going to be okay in Goshen, but just do what I say, obey, but I'm going to carry this out. Even when they come to the Red Sea, God says, I'm going to part the waters, and all you need to do is listen to my word and obey and walk through the sea. So this is passive participation. Israel really doesn't have to do much except to simply obey what God says. But now we move into what I'm calling active responsibility. And ultimately, we prefer to stay in the passive area. But God now is calling us into the active area. In other words, we would rather say, God, deliver me from my trial, my struggle, and my need. But the new reality, friends, is this. God expects an active responsibility from his children. Both of these elements, friends, are part of living a healthy Christian life. And let's just try and look at these in kind of a polar opposite, right? If you are totally passive, then you just sit back and you say, let go and let God. In other words, I don't have any responsibility. God's going to have to do it for me. That is not a biblical approach at all. If you're totally active, then you will have a hard time trusting in him to do what he promises in his way and according to his timetable. And you'll always be trying to figure out the way you can do it for him. And this is where the tension is. But get this, there's a balance in the Christian life between depending on God, recognizing that God is the one that has to deliver you, but at the same time, acting in accordance with the responsibilities that he's put on your shoulders. So we, we are, in a sense, passive Saying, God, do what you need to do, but we're also active by saying, God, you've called us to do some things. Both of those things are working together in your walk with Him. Now, friends, this is for us a call to fight. And we find this, this language, we find these kinds of instructions in the New Testament. I want you to think through a few verses of scripture with me. We have in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul says, fight the good fight of faith, right? And he says, he says also in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So we have language here that talks about fighting and battle. Then he says in Ephesians chapter 6.13, I'm sure you know this very well, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand that's a military expression of saying fight and don't let them through. And then the book of Hebrews, chapter four eleven says, let us therefore strive, again, military language, to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So we're called to fight, to move forward, to take action, to strive, not simply just to sit back. And he calls us to fight to fight the internal threats of sin and rebellion, as well as the external threats from those who oppose us simply because we're God's children. So now God is calling on Israel to fight, and in particular in this account, to fight the Amalekites. Now, the text tells us that Amalek came and fought with Israel. And the emphasis there is that Amalek is initiating the battle. But we find further clarification in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 25. Oop, got ahead of there. Chapter 25 and verse 17. Here's what it says, and I want you to notice some specifics that help us understand the nature of how Amalek comes. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary And cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So Amalek was attacking the weak stragglers, likely those who needed more time, possibly the elderly, the sick, the injured, the weary. I don't know, there could have been children in that entourage at the back. So this was not a frontal attack of the army against an army but a picking off of the weak. So friends, there's a reality we must embrace. God is calling us to fight because the enemy does come and will come. Secondly, there's a strategy we must employ. And I want you to notice in this passage, the emphasis here is on two things. First of all, notice we find Joshua brought up. This is the first time he's even brought up in Scripture. Of course, we know that Joshua is going to be Moses' successor eventually, but Joshua is Israel's warrior leader. I mean, he's the one that goes out, and he's the one that fights, right? Now, when Moses tells Joshua to go choose men, we must not think that he's calling on Joshua to ready the Hebrew special forces to go into battle or the already prepared army to go into battle. No, there's there's no army. (laughs) There's no special forces. These are just former slaves who've been brought out of Egypt, who are now in the wilderness by God's hand of deliverance. So these are not men who have forged their skills in boot camp and mock battles. No, they're men who have worked themselves to exhaustion, building bricks, as slaves in Egypt. They're men who have done what they had just to survive. These are simply men, former slaves, who might have some kind of pointy object to take into battle to fight these Amaleks or Amalekites. And Joshua doesn't have time, right? This is going to happen tomorrow to teach and train these fighting men. He might have organized them some way, but certainly not into a fighting machine. Now, the Amalekites are on them, and tomorrow the battle will take place. So we find now Joshua taking up the sword. Then we also find now Moses taking up the staff. The staff of God has been a key symbol throughout the Exodus story. It's a symbol that represents God's presence, his power, and his authority. You saw it at the burning bush, where God basically established that that staff as being the means by which he was going to work. You saw it as it turned into a large snake and swallowed up the magician's snakes. You saw it initiate and complete the, the various plagues. You saw it held over the Red Sea when God parted the waters. You, you saw it when, when uh, Moses struck the rock and it brought out the water of life. Now it will be held up to remind Israel of God's presence, his power, and his authority. So friends, what we see here are weak inexperienced, run-of-the-mill people faithfully engaged in battle, who find their strength and direction by looking to the presence, power, and authority of Almighty God. My friends, it's important for us to see this strategy. So we've seen the reality, we've seen the strategy, but notice now the weapons That we must use. This is not necessarily in the text, but I think by means of application, when we need to think, when when we see this call to arms, what is being talked about is God saying, Gateway Bible Church, grab your weapons, go out and defeat the physical enemy that's out there. And I would say, no, that's not the point. And I think it's worth us noting that we do function with spiritual weapons. In fact, Ephesians chapter six helps us understand what those weapons are. Right. We're first told that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And we're to put on the whole armor of God, and ultimately all of that bathed in prayer. And notice we're talking here about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit, which is the word of God. These are the weapons, these are the tools of our warfare. Some of them are more defensive, some of them are offensive, some of them kind of do both things. But these are the the tools, the, the weaponry we take into battle in the spiritual arena, and they produce in us then spiritual character, and then as a result of that, we can use that character and that mindset as we enter, might maybe possibly into the, uh, the actual physical realm where battles may take place. So there's spiritual weapons, there are also earthly weapons. And I would say this there is a place for a theology of war. And we don't have time this morning to kind of work it out. But this is not the role of the church so much as this is the role of a just government to defend the innocent, to liberate the oppressed, to exercise justice on those who cause unjust harm. And it's always interesting to me that during the Second World War, there were a lot of godly pastors who were pacifists. They just believed that it was was unjustifiable to go to war, that Christians shouldn't do that. It was a conscience issue. Yet as they heard about the atrocities that Hitler and His regime was actually carrying out by rounding up the Jews, by by actually taking the battle to the citizens rather than the armies. Um, They moved in their position from pacifism to recognize that this was a battle to stop evil from spreading and to protect the innocent. So in this text, we're reminded that the world is full of enemies and we're called to fight battles that come to us But while that's taking place, to look to Jesus as we fight. So we're called to fight, friends. We're called to fight. But not only that, as we continue in our text, we're called to help. And this is such an important section of Scripture. This is a a really important part of this passage. Now, it's a familiar part of, of, of Israel's history. For many of us who've been around the church for a while, And it's often used as an example of faithful and enduring prayer. But friends, there's nothing in this text that points to or indicates that what Moses is doing is praying. In fact, there is plenty in this text that's telling us that something else is going on. There may be prayer present, but that is not the focus. That is not the emphasis of what is going on. It's something more than prayer. In fact, to say that this is simply prayer is to limit both the meaning and the application of this text. Now, as I read this section, listen to how many times the word hand or hands is used. Beginning at verse 10. And Joshua did as Moses told him, and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Did you hear all of those references to hands? Now the question is this is the focus on Moses' hands, or is the focus on what Moses has in his hands? And what we need to do is go back to verse 9 and see what it says. Because in verse 9, we see that it is the staff of God that is in his hand. The symbol and reminder of God's presence and power and authority. In fact, even when you look back at the plague account, it is clear that when Moses is instructed to raise his hands, that the implication is that he's raising the staff of God in his hands. So the staff of God here is key to unlocking what is happening here. And we also then have some shifting scenes, don't we, in the imagery. The text shifts from one scene to another. We have Joshua fighting Amalek in the valley, and you have Moses up on the hill with uh, Aaron and Hur holding up the staff of God. And there's a correlation between these two arenas, these two scenes that is happening, both on the top of the hill and in the valley. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. When Moses lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now, I want to ask you a question. How long do you think you can hold up your hands? Now, you might say, oh, I can hold it up five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour. Maybe after the sermon today, you can time yourself. Just hold your hands up in the air and see how long it takes before they start feeling heavy. You're going to find out you're not going to be able to hold your hands up for very long. And what we need to see is that especially in the midst of battle, weariness can kick in. And we have no strength left in us. Now, I want you to notice here that there is a weariness that takes place with Moses. Moses here is simply an instrument in the hands of God. And God is calling him to lift up his hands with the staff in his hands. It's actually, when you think about it, a very mundane task, right? Hey, go raise your hands with the staff in your hands. All right, I think I can do that. I don't have to have like a book to show me the instructions of techniques and stuff. I go raise my hand. The staff is there, right? It's very simple. It's very mundane. But, but Moses grows weary. Moses was not the one who was winning the battle. Moses was a weak instrument. And the, the work to which God had called him to do, again, wasn't extraordinary. It was simply to lift up his hands. And friends, the Lord has called you to be faithful in the, the midst of all the different interactions that you have with others in your life. He's not calling you to do something extra extraordinary or amazing. It's rather a mundane and simple thing. I know in recent years, there's been an emphasis on doing things that are radical, And there's a place for that. But quite frankly, friends, most of Christian life is lived out in the ordinary. It's simple obedience, loving your neighbor, serving a coworker, caring for your children, giving yourself to your spouse, honoring your parents, just to name a few. And even in these mundane tasks, we can become weary. And as we look back on this text, we are reminded of the seriousness of the moment. Moses' weariness can cause him to lower his hands, and when that happens, Amalek prevails. And, of course, what that means is that Israel suffers. So you can just imagine the burden that's going on in his heart when he realizes and recognizes what he's doing. Here is a weak servant of the Lord called upon to take the responsibility of raising his standard, or God's standard, for all to see to be reminded of God's presence, power, and authority, but his hands are weary and his strength is draining from him. Have you ever felt that way? There may not be this huge battle going on necessarily, but you know what God has called you to. You're loving others, caring for others, serving others, giving of yourself, and you're weary in fighting for the glory of God. And you feel your spiritual strength failing. And you just want to escape. For many of you, that means finding a private place where you can go to cry out to God and pour out your emotions like a psalm of lament. For some, it takes the form of keeping yourself busy to drown out the hurt and the pain that you feel. For others, it means turning to that go-to place where you can drown your sorrows. It can be food, it can be drugs, it can be alcohol, it can be pornography. For some, it means giving in and giving up. It's just too hard to fight against the flow of the world so that, uh, so that it's so aggressive and it's seeking to pull me down. I just can't do it anymore. I've had enough. I don't want to fight anymore. And friends, isn't this what the world around us is doing? Isn't this what they're saying? How can you believe in God? Any logical thinking person would see that it's all nonsense. Do you really think it's loving to tell me that I'm going to hell if I don't believe? How hateful is that? Why can't you just let People live how they want to live rather than trying to force your morals on them, which, of course, is in its own statement a moral axiom to live by, right? How can you call yourself a Christian when you won't embrace my lifestyle and accept me for who I am? If you were a real Christian, you would vote for fill in the bank. See, these are all the pressures that we're experiencing right now. And there are probably others too. The point is, it's daunting to live in the context of a world that is opposed to you, simply because you're a follower of Christ. And it's easy, friends, to get weary. What the world is doing is seeking to squeeze you into its mold. It's Romans 12 too. By the barrage of, of arguments the constant pressure to conform by the cancel culture that basically says if you don't agree with us, you're canceled, you're irrelevant, you don't mean anything. It's daunting, friends. It's intimidating, and we can feel overwhelmed. Do you feel weary? Do you feel overrun by the the world's pressure to conform to its legalistic standards, pressuring you to measure up or shut up? It's legalism, friends. Are you ready to throw in the towel because the Christian life that God has called you to is so overwhelming? And friends, what you need is help. Now, some of you know I've taken up golf once again. I used to play when I was younger. Kids came, put the clubs away. I'll go out every once in a while, but more recently I've gone out more and more and find it to be good therapy and just refreshing. And it also allows me to meet people for the first time that I've never met before. A few weeks ago, I went to play golf in San Ramon at a course that I played for before, but I I had gotten a a push cart and I was like, I want to get out there and I want to walk and I want to enjoy myself. And I enjoy that part of, of playing golf. But I started and five holes in, I was exhausted and I was Sweating profusely. This is really unusual because that's not normal for me I'm usually a pretty good walker and I can endure a lot. And I wasn't what is going on here? I was hydrating well I prepared by eating well, but I was losing strength and the the gentleman that I was playing with his name was Bo And he offered for me to ride in the cart with him, but I was determined to walk and um, I was enjoying the exercise, but it was hard going Periodically throughout the round, Bo kept asking me the question, hey, I can give you a ride. And I, of course, was determined to walk. So I said, no, I'm good, thanks. But when we got to the 15th hole, I reached the end of my strength, and I finally gave in. Uh, The course was far more hilly than I thought it was because I'd only experienced it by riding in a cart, and especially that second half of the course, it just did me in. And so I took him up on his offer, And uh, made sure I continued to hydrate. Felt a little bit of my strength coming back. But it was only because of the repeated request and offer from Bo that I was able to be helped that day and to finish the round. Now friends, sometimes we can be too stubborn to take the help that people are offering. They see a struggle. They offer to help but our pride can get in the way. And if you're weary in the battle, God has given you the church to be a means of help, to lift up your hands, to to help you in the midst of that struggle. But you have to swallow your pride and you have to acknowledge your need. So there's weariness in the battle, but there's also the steadiness that comes to the battle. Notice verse 12, Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands. You can just take in the picture, can't you? Aaron, Moses' brother, on one side. Hur, we believe that he was um, Miriam's husband, at least that's what tradition says. And they jump in to help. Now, I want you to notice what they don't say. They don't say, hey Moses, lay down your burden We'll hold up the staff. But see, that wasn't Aaron's responsibility. It wasn't Hur's responsibility. It was Moses' responsibility given to him by God. And so what they do is they come alongside Moses and they say, let us support you as you carry out your God-given responsibility. So what can we learn from Aaron and her as example? Let me give you four things that I see here. First of all, they were present. They were present. Now, certainly, this is hard for us to do when we're sheltering in place. I not want to say in a physical sense, but we can certainly make phone calls, you know, have Zoom conversations, have some face to face. Maybe there are some people now that we are bubbling with that we can choose to be with because we, we want to be present with them because we know that they're going through some difficulties. Not only that, they were observant. Aaron and her were observant enough to see that Moses was having a hard time, right? And that means we have to have eyes that can see, eyes that are observing what's happening in the life of another believer. They were interested. I mean, they cared enough. They didn't just observe and say, oh, you know, they're going through a rough time. They were interested actually to do something about that. They weren't just going off and doing their own thing and saying, hey, if you need something, give me a call. They They were interested enough to say, what can I do? which ultimately leads then to the last thing, and that is they took initiative, right? When, when they saw his hands grow weary, they, they lifted them up. They took a stone so he could sit down and be more comfortable and, and make the lifting up easier, but then they also lifted up his hands together. So Moses moved then from having a weary hands with the help of Aaron and Hur to having steady hands in the midst of this battle and it wasn't Moses that was winning the battle, but it was Moses' responsibility to hold up the banner, to hold up the staff. And when he did that, Israel prevailed. Moses had to be willing to acknowledge that he had a need and needed to receive their support. And Aaron and her had to be observant and interested enough to know how they could support him in a way that was necessary. Now, friends, here's a question for you. How are you reading or listening to this text? If you're reading the text in a way that only helps you, then you're drawn to Moses who is struggling in his need, and you're saying or you're thinking, yes, people need to come to my aid. And maybe they do. (laughs) Maybe you are a person who needs some help, and it's not wrong to feel that way. And so that might be you this morning. You're having a hard time in your marriage or as a parent or at work or, or even you're having some significant health issues. But maybe God wants you to see yourself as a person who needs to help, to be prepared to help, a person who needs to be present, a person who needs to be observant, a person who needs to be interested, a person that needs to take initiative. You might ask yourself, how can I serve those who are part of my church family? What am I supposed to do to help them? What do I have to offer them? I'm just a simple follower of Jesus. I don't have many things. Look, so much of what Scripture says is not for the super Christian. It's for the average person like you and me. I'm sorry, I'm calling you average. That's because you are, so am I. That's just who we are. And God works his will just through normal, run-of-the-mill people like us. So you can simply lift Their hands. Oh, what are some ways you can lift their hands? Well, certainly by praying with them and praying for them. Let me just tell you something. It's good to say, I am praying for you. It's another thing to actually get on the phone or get on Zoom and pray with someone. For them to hear what's coming out of your mouth as you pray for them. Also, by finding ways to lighten their load. So here are just some things to think through. Uh, Asking, asking questions and actively listening without judging. In other words, allow them to express the things that are on their heart. Thinking, helping them to articulate their thoughts and struggles. So asking, thinking, singing. We encourage one another and point to Christ when we sing songs together with them, right? Singing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Something about singing songs together. Doing. It could be doing laundry. It could be running errands. It could be picking up prescriptions. It could be all sorts of things. But you're you're observing and you're recognizing, hey, there's a way that I could help. Encouraging. By encouraging them to press on with God's help. Right. Phone calls, emails, cards. So asking, thinking, singing, doing, encouraging. These are all ways that you can do this. Praying. Ultimately, you want to help them to keep their focus on the Lord. You may have heard Benjamin Franklin's maxim, God helps those who help themselves. It's Not found in scripture. Not a quote of scripture, okay? Now there may be an element of truth to what he's saying, but God does want us to carry out our responsibility, certainly. But you're going to find, friends, that that is not necessarily found in Scripture. Let me ask, did you come to Christ by yourself? And if we allow Scripture to be our teacher, we're going to find out, no, that's not what happens. You were drawn to Christ by His sovereign grace, pulling you to realize your need of redemption. It is what God is doing. So we don't just step back and say, well, God helps those who help themselves. Well, certainly, yeah. I mean, you know, if you need a job, you know, start working and looking for the job. Yeah, absolutely. But the reality is, friends, that God is there. He's there to help, and his people are there to help. Maybe one of the flaws in our American culture and even in our American Christianity is our strong belief in independence, where we fight for our own personal rights to the neglect of the responsibility of the community, in particular the community of believers. But you will have a hard time seeing that in scripture, this individualism. The church is gathering, is a gathering of called out people of God who rally around the banner of the Lord. We are united in Christ. We share in the same gospel. Yes, we have a personal walk with Christ, but that personal walk is meant to take place with the community of believers. Now, why? Well, there's many reasons why, but as we reflect on this text, we will see that one of the reasons is this. We need help, and we need the body of Christ to be the means by which they're coming around us and lifting up our hands, ultimately pointing us once again to Christ. So, we're called to fight, we're called to help, but we're also called to remember. This call to remember isn't a suggestion, it's a command and we see that Joshua wins the battle because of Moses' steady hand and God's deliverance. God instructs Moses now to accomplish two things that will help Israel and the world to remember. First of all, he talks about a book, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua" that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now, he says, first of all, write it as a memorial in a book. Write something down in a book. A scroll is what this was. It might seem um, like it wouldn't be that difficult because we're so used to writing things down and having notepads and post-its and all that kind of stuff. We're used to writing. But just imagine, here's Israel coming into the wilderness Um, I don't know that they had iPads or things like that. They could just jot some things down and keep a a tally and all that kind of stuff. No, it was a big, huge scroll, probably brought with them out of Egypt then, and they were crude instruments that they would use to record stuff. This was not a small thing. This was an important thing, and likely there was one scroll. It was the scroll, and likely this scroll is the, the data or records the data from which Moses then actually records the events of what happened with Israel in Egypt and coming into the wilderness. So he's saying, write this down. Why? Because this is important. I want want people to remember this. I want Israel to remember this. And in particular, he mentions Joshua here when he says, not only write it, but recite it in the ears of Joshua. Why does Joshua need to hear this? Now remember... It's Moses that's hearing it first, but he wants Joshua now to to, to be reminded of this. Why? He is the warrior leader of Israel, and this is a battle with Amalek. And we know that although Joshua wins this battle, ultimately God is the one who wins the battle for him, right? But Joshua is victorious. Amalek will still be around. And it's good for Joshua to know that God ultimately will blot them out. We'll see that. But I want you to notice that in chapter 17, verse 1 through 7, in that passage, we're left with a lingering question, aren't we? It's on the lips of quarreling Israel. And they say, is the Lord among us or not? Well, we come now to this victory over Amalek. And of course, the answer is, not only is the Lord among you, but if you are God's children, don't worry because You don't want to mess with the God of the children of Israel. Egypt knew it. The nations heard about it. And Amalek experienced it. Write it. Recite it. Know it. Just hear this. He says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Those are hard words. It isn't just that the Lord won the battle. That's not the only thing that he once recorded, but he once recorded that Amalek would be decimated. So what records do we have of the Amalekites? Well, there's no historical record of the Amalekites outside of the Bible. Now, of course, some scholars have chosen to use this as an opportunity to say, See, the Bible can't be trusted because it talks about these Amalekite people, but we have no record of it. But if we follow the consistency of Scripture, we have to say it is almost as if Amalek has been blotted out of history. And it is evidence that the Lord was faithful to keep his promise. Oh, we'll see Amalek rise up again. They'll come along the scene in the book of of Samuel. They'll be around, but ultimately, they will be blotted out by God's servant. So here we have this book. Write this in the book, recite it, and know it. But secondly, build an altar, and this is what he does. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. So this also didn't just take 10 minutes to build. This was something that was significant that I'm sure took much time to build there in the wilderness. And it's an altar. An altar has a purpose. It's not just there as a memorial. It's there as a tool, as a place where Israel can go to offer sacrifice and praise to the Lord. They have just won a battle. What do you do? You celebrate. You know that God is the one who did it, so you you praise him for what he's done, and the means by which you do that is through a sacrifice. But not only a sacrifice here. we have a We have this recognition that this altar is to declare a message, and here is the message, that the Lord is my banner. Now, of course, as we mentioned, for us, a banner is something that you see on top of a website. It's a piece of cloth that's on a pole, right? It's a flag, it's a, it's a standard, it's, it's something that testifies then in this context to the Lord, that he's present, that he's powerful, that he is the authority, and that he is the one who brings about Israel's deliverance in the wilderness, and it's God who provides protection and deliverance for, um, from the enemy's attack. Now here's the point. When you look to Christ as your banner, you're placing your hand upon the throne of God, so you want to reach heaven in the midst of your trial. Look to Christ. When you do that, you're reaching up through Christ to the throne of heaven. This is kind of a picture there. It's helping you understand the significance of what it means to turn to Jesus in the midst of your struggle. So it's to look to Jesus, the Son of God who's seated on the throne for your direction, for your hope, and for your guidance. And though it may not seem that the Lord is present, you can be sure that he is. We have a, a banner displayed to us. Now listen to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Here's what we're told. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus then is held up for us to see that he is reflecting, he is this banner declaring the glory of God. It's a powerful statement. Isaiah understood what was going on when he says, in that day the root of Jesse, which is a a messianic term for Christ and ultimately is pointed to Jesus. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal. That's the same word that is translated banner. He'll stand as a signal, as a banner for the peoples, right? Plural of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. And he goes on to say that he will extend his hand and gather his people from all nations and none of the enemies of his people will stand. They will all be overthrown, but they rally around the banner of the root of Jesse. So how do we see Christ here? How do we... Look to Jesus. Well, first of all, we find him in his word. We go to the scriptures. And when we go to the scriptures, we linger and we marinate in the truth of Christ. And when we do, we find words of clarity and words of encouragement. We're told that his love, his steadfast love, endures forever we're told that because we are His, we will make it to the promised land, right? He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We're told to look to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one that started the journey in you, and He's the one who will finish it. And all along the journey, he is there on display to remind you that he has you completely in his hand. Now, friends, the reality is that everyone has a banner, something that they look to for identity and security. Dante wrote about this in his classic work, Inferno. He described one of the outer circles of hell where people were chasing back and forth after a banner. They could never reach it, but they never stopped chasing it. And this is what he says. I saw a banner there in the mist, circling and circling. It seemed to scorn all pause. And so it ran on and still behind it pressed a never-ending route of souls in pain. Dante understood something important about human nature. That people need a standard. Something to look to for their identity and for their security. And some people spend their whole lives chasing after it without ever reaching a place of rest. Now, friends, our text is screaming at us this morning. Look to the Lord as your banner. Jesus is that banner that you can not only look to, but that you can reach. He is there. He's, He's there to point you, to counsel you, to guide you in the midst of your life. And he and the cross are the banner that is displayed for all to see. Oh well, friends, this is powerful stuff. This is helpful stuff because we are in the midst of a battle and we are weary and we need strength, but we also need a reference point. And of course, that reference point is Jesus Christ on his cross. Now, as we bring things to a close, I want to think of two things. First of all, the challenge of leadership. There's a challenge for those who are in leadership in the context of the church. If leaders, elders, pastors do not faithfully preach, teach, proclaim, and guard the gospel of Jesus Christ and and make sure that that is central, then the church will grow weary and will give up and give in to the world around them. Oh, the the leadership in the church is trying to do all sorts of things in today's culture to make sure that the culture loves them and likes them and all that kind of stuff. Friends, that's not what God has called leadership to. It's called leadership to unpack the Word of God, to press home the Word of God, and to point people to Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That is the banner. That is the reference point. We're all in grave danger, and leadership in particular is in grave danger with this present generation. We're all pulled by a society that wants to to joyfully embrace what God calls sin and mock any who oppose them. We're pulled by a Christian culture that is more concerned about political outcomes than living out the Christian walk with integrity before God. So we must be in prayer for the church of God, and in particular for the elders and pastors, not just of Gateway, but for the church at large, that they will not be swept away by the popular culture, and that it was, they will stand firm in the faithful preaching and teaching of the word of God, because it is Jesus, it is, it is the gospel, that is our banner, it's the reference point, it is what we need to get us through. There's a challenge of leadership. Secondly, there's a challenge of the church or for the church. Hear this. Even when church leadership is faithful in proclaiming the truth, the battle rages in the valley. The fight with Amalek is still taking place. Marriages are struggling. Parents are discouraged by choices their children are making. Children feel liberated by the culture to turn on their parents. The workplace is laced with touchy political correctness. Society is suspicious of one another and is growing more polarized. And it is such a greater temptation to sin. And it's easy to be swept away, to be sucked in, and to be trampled on. And friends, we need to fight to look up and see the banner of the Lord, to remember his presence, his power, and his authority, to see the bigger picture of redemption, to see the whole of what God is saying is yet to come, that the church will stand victorious with Christ in heaven. But while we're here in the wilderness, we have to fight. My friends, I want to close with a very well-known psalm. In Psalm 121. I would invite you to turn there. And I would invite you to consider the words of this psalm. Sometimes we misread what the psalm is talking about. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I just want to pause there. The, The looking up to the hills is where people look for human help, help from armies. Help from people. They're looking to the hills, and there's no one there. There's no army to deliver them. Where is my help going to come from? It's not going to come from the hills. You have to look higher than the hills. You have to look to God. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Friends, in the midst of the wilderness, there's a banner whose name is Jesus Christ the Son of God hanging on a cross dying for your sins the answer to your helplessness and your need of strength and hope and we're called to turn and look to him and find help from him carried out through his body so that we can be not weary but we can be strengthened for what God has called us to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord we thank you for your kindness to us. For this reminder of the fact that not only are we weak people, but we are weak people who have a solution. Not necessarily to overwhelm or to to displace the weakness. We'll still be weak people. But to, to find strength because of the body of Christ, and Lord, to also find strength because it is you that has brought about the body of Christ to be a means of strength to us. So Lord, help us to look to you, to see that the implications of what you have done on the cross are not simply salvific, not simply meaning that we we enter from, from darkness into light, although that is glorious, and we celebrate that, and we rejoice about that, But Lord, it continues on and it is very present with us that in the midst of our walk with you, you are there to turn to. Your gospel is there to remind us not only of our condition and our need of the gospel, but of the beauty and the glory and the majesty of who you are and what you have done for us and what you are doing right now for us. So Lord, even today, as we reflect on this text, and as we move into a time to celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we look to the elements, may we also look to you hanging on that cross as the sacrifice once for all. And that these elements would would not just simply be a reflection of blood and bread, but will be a reflection of the blood and the the, the body of Christ that that was sacrificed for us so that we would be eternally changed and we would have consistent life. Lord, we need you desperately. And we need to be reminded of who you are. You are held up. You are there on display. And Lord, when we turn to you and look to you, we find strength and a steady hand. And Lord, we, we just praise you because there's only so much that we can do in the battle. We may be responsible, but Lord, you are the one who wins. You are the one who's victorious. And so we desperately need you. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and for our time and encouragement in your word this morning. In your precious name, amen.